This is episode 90 of the Landscape Photography Show brought to you by Near Zero Backpacks. And before we get into things, I want to thank patron John Norris for supporting the podcast. With John's tier of patreon.com slash David Johnston, he gets exclusive access to audio from this podcast where I talk to our guest in an extensive amount of time about some of the topics that we discussed in this but she goes into further detail about those in the exclusive content on Patreon. John also gets access to things like webinar events. He gets a quarterly ebook. He gets meetings with me two times a year. So I'm thrilled that John signed up. We've been interacting on social media for years now, and it's just good to have him aboard the Patreon group. So thank you so much, John, for being a patron for the podcast and helping that go week after week. If you want to become a patron like John, go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for a tier that fits your budget. Now, in this episode specifically, we're talking to photographer Sapna Reddy. And I met Sapna at the Outsiders Conference in Kanab, Utah, where we were on a panel discussion together about landscape photography and the environment and how you can protect the environment through our landscape photography steps you can take and also things that we've seen as our careers have progressed in landscape photography i wanted to talk to her a little bit about that but you know one thing i love about podcasts is they tend to go where they go the discussions can wander into other territory and one of the really interesting things that I talked to Sapna about was the healing power of photography and using that to help people who are in distress, who are in pain, who are in the hospital, and also talked to her about her career in radiology. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, we're here with Sapna Reddy, and Sapna and I actually met in person at the Outsiders Conference, and we had a really good panel discussion on conservation through our photography. It is a topic I'd love to get into with you, Sapna, but, but first, why don't we, well, first of all, welcome to the show, and, and second, why don't we get started talking about how you were introduced to photography and, and what kind of led you to where you are with it right now. Thanks for having me, David. It was a pleasure meeting you at the Outsiders Conference. I actually have listened to quite a few of your podcasts and I really enjoy your interviewing style. So I uh, felt honored <laughs> when you said we could chat. Um, as far as my journey into photography goes, um, you know, I'm probably going to be very cliche when I say I always had a love for the outdoors. Um, as a child um, growing up in uh, South India, I would often spend the summers in the village, uh, my grandfather's uh, village. And those were some of the most pleasant memories for me because every day we would get to swim in the local river. We would get to pluck the fruit from the trees. Um, they had the uh, large um, acres of farmland that we would just run wild through and all the cousins would get together so there would be like 10 to 15 kids running amok <laughs> playing outside and literally spending the whole day outside and um, for a girl who lived in the city otherwise that was a very very welcoming um, welcome experience for me um, absolutely loved my time there and that love for nature I think was fostered at that point. Um, we used to scramble up the hillsides, explore the local forests, and just a very deep-rooted love for um, that sort of environment um, was put into me at a very early age. Um, and later on, when I migrated to America, of course, I um, eagerly explored the wild places. Um, the camera didn't come into my hand until much later, actually. I used to hike, I used to camp, um, and, and just loved spending time outdoors, but never really thought of documenting the experience. Uh, much later in life, after I had kids, 
I started taking pictures of the kids. And since we spent most of our time outside, and since all our vacations tend to be in a tent, it just so happened that I was shooting in the middle of nature. And then gradually my camera shifted its focus from the kids to actual nature. Um, initially, when I started photographing, it was more to document the experiences I was having. But that transition to expressive photography and to um, using the uh, using photography as a creative medium of expression just was so organic and so gradual that I never really even realized it was happening. And um, the more I photographed, uh, the more I became um, tuned to trying to express myself through that. Um, and it no longer was, you know, just showing people what I was experiencing. It was more what I was feeling. And it wasn't even what I was feeling in the moment that I was standing at the scene. It was more like when I was rendering the image, how I was feeling. It was more of what I wanted the viewer to feel about that place. So um, that evolution happened uh, kind of at a subconscious level. Now, um, if you look at my photography, it has a very specific purpose to it. And that is um, with the philosophy that nature is healing and that the pursuit of art itself is a healing process. So um, I am very much into the wellness realm and bringing art to people, um, not only to create an ambience of healing, but also teaching photography so that people can um, can use that for uh, achieving a better state of mental well-being. When did you move to the United States? Uh, as soon as I became an adult. Compare for me, though, culturally, what, what you experienced in India versus in the States. Um, uh, so it's, it's interesting you ask that question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. You know, in India, I actually came from quite an affluent family. Um, my grandparents had been landlords, which means they owned uh, hundreds of acres of land. And uh, my, my mom was a physician and my dad was a lawyer. So uh, my uh, life in the city was also quite comfortable. We had a lot of help at home. And, you know, I was growing up literally in the lap of luxury. And um, it just so happened that my mom was a very eminent physician. Uh, the entire city knew about her. And um, it was almost a little bit intimidating to grow up in her shadow just because she was so, she was one of the first women physicians um, and uh, she was internationally acclaimed. She had hundreds of publications to her credit. Uh, she was the director of the National Institute of Nutrition. She had worked on eradicating um, child blindness by instituting a vitamin A, a supplement program across the country. So she was just... Um, a huge inspiration for me. Uh, but at the same time, growing up under a parent who's that famous means everybody knows you're the daughter <laughs> of that parent. So it was a tall order to live up to. Um, and so um, I think when I came to America, the biggest difference I noticed is that nobody knew who I was. Nobody really cared. Uh, what family I came from. Um, nobody really cared who my ancestors were. And that's not how it is in India because family gets a lot of significance. The culture uh, that you come from is given a lot of significance. Your upbringing kind of defines who you are and people know right off the bat who you are the minute you say you're from this family. Whereas here, everybody's kind of a stranger. Nobody knows anyone. And so that was a big cultural shift to all of a sudden be a nobody. <laughs> um, and it was also liberating in a way because then nobody cared what I did and I didn't have to live up to certain expectations. I had come with a head full of dreams to achieve things on my own. I had uh, $800 in my pocket when I arrived and I was very keen on not asking for any more money from my parents and kind of trying to be independent. So I actually, um, you know, managed to get a teaching assistantship right off the bat so I could pay for my tuition. 
had enough to pay my rent and so became financially independent overnight and that felt really good and i think that that is probably the big change in culture because in india even if you are on the brink of being an adult you're still very protected and all your expenses are taken care of and you know there is no push to make you financially independent when you come from such a secure financial background but when you throw yourself out here and say no it's like a sink or swim situation and i need to make it on my own um it gave me a lot of self confidence it gave me um you know the realization that it is possible for me um to chart out my own path and not have to depend on anyone so i'm very thankful um, i'm your typical immigrant whose dreams came true that has to be empowering for you in a way though yes it is and yeah you know um it is a country that has let me that has given me so much opportunity i did not get into medical school in india because it's fiercely competitive and it just wasn't good enough i missed it with a couple of points and i had to bear the shame that uh being the daughter of such an eminent physician i did not have the brains to get into med school it was you know um a running joke um and uh so when my parents said would you like us to pay for you know your donation because you could buy a medical seat um i didn't want that i wanted to make it on my own so when i came here and decided to do medicine on my own and took the mcat and got a score that got me into medical school and got me the scholarship um it it taught me that that um it basically taught me to stand up when you fall down you know to keep going cuz if you keep trying you can achieve your dreams um so you just don't hold back in that effort do we in the states do indian food right <laughs> i depends on who you uh are talking about right i do indian food just right in the us <laughs> and i know many others do too um it's a huge passion of mine actually cooking and um the city i come from in india hyderabad is uh, very famous for a dish that's called biryani it's where you cook mm. meat usually goat meat into rice and um it's a delicacy across the world and uh you know i i have my family recipe for that and take great pride in that i know there are quite a few people here who do um make indian food the authentic way but a lot of times you know when you talk about curry powder there is no such thing actually mm-hmm. um so uh, the masalas are actually very specific as you add them to the dishes and so we don't have a generic curry powder we use Uh so if you're using curry powder and if you think turmeric is what's giving it taste then you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny when I lived in Haiti I, we also lived uh alongside uh three Indians and they would prepare us meals from time to time and it was like the most amazing food that I have ever I've ever eaten before and when when we moved back to the states I've tried and tried to find that just that like comforting indian food and I just I can't find it anywhere um maybe I need to like branch out a little bit more to other parts of the united states to try to find it I think you should come visit california david <laughs> I I need to if that's where the the good indian food is yeah actually every uh you know for the holiday season every year i would invite the staff um at the hospital to just come and taste my cooking and they absolutely loved it and they said exactly the same thing that they had not tasted uh indian food like that before so there is a difference to home cooking i'm sure i i could actually do the entire show on indian food but i i'll i'll reserve <laughs> that just for us talking at the end um You mentioned you did medicine on your own. What kind of medicine do you practice? I'm a radiologist now. Um and I'm actually practicing general radiology. I did uh, super specialize in pediatric radiology uh, from Stanford, but um it just so happened that I like um uh, you know taking care of adults as well. So now I practice general radiology. Um 
and uh, it basically is a visual analysis uh, to explain it a little bit. Um, you basically look at, uh, you know, pretty much black and white images. They could be CT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds, x-rays, and you try to figure out what's wrong with the human body. So uh, it does involve extensive visual analysis with the backing of a uh, database, a visual database that you carry with you. So it's a little like um, playing the, you know, a game, where is Waldo? Uh, you know, the picture books that kids t- uh, take up. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to find Waldo, which is the abnormality in the human body, except Waldo can be disguised as anything. You just need to recognize that Waldo can look like anything and can hide anywhere and you need to figure out where that is and then alert uh you know, uh, the other physician so that they can remove Waldo, who's causing trouble in the body. Why? I know you do photography on the business side as well, doing uh, workshops. And I mean, we met at the Outsiders, so you all obviously go and do some speaking engagements as well. Why take on business in both radiology and also photography? That's such a nice question. Thanks for asking. So I now work part-time in uh, radiology. Um, so I do three days of radiology and you know, it's considered a high-stress job. So they actually mandate about uh, six to eight weeks of vacation for us. Um, so between having three days free uh, from radiology and then having that extra vacation time, I actually end up splitting my time pretty equally between radiology and photography. And when you say, why do you want to make it a career and not um, just, you know, do it for fun? Um, it's because I actually like teaching radiology as well. And um, uh, sorry, teaching photography as well. I love teaching radiology too, but uh, talking about photography. And so conducting these workshops basically forces me to learn and get better because in order to teach something, you have to practice the art even more. So it keeps that discipline going. When I say I'm going to sell photographs, you set that goal, then you kind of have to go out and generate the photographs that are good enough to be able to sell, right? And then when you say, I'm going to be in the wellness realm, then it forces you to step back and read more about, okay, what are what are the um, facets of an image that are the aspects of an image that make it healing? Uh, how can you create an ambiance of healing? What are the kinds of things uh, you would try to incorporate if you ran a program where uh, you're trying to teach art with the purpose that someone would heal themselves? Um, so when you force yourself to do all of those things, irrespective of whether you're making money off of it or not, but when you force yourself to do all of things, all of those things, then it really becomes a more professional approach to it. Because now you are no longer doing it just to, um, you know, appease yourself. You're doing it with a much stronger purpose. And uh, I find art is much more meaningful when you have a purpose behind it. Um, And then whatever, you know, a significant part of what I generate as far as income goes, goes back into charity. So the whole experience has made it a much more meaningful endeavor rather than just going out and shooting because I like to do so. I hope that answers the question. Sure. And if you look at a a day in the life of radiology versus photography are there any similarities between the two or is it a a difference that you need to kind of unwind and and take a breath um so actually um they are similar in that you do indulge in visual analysis in both right so you are trying to observe the nuances of tone you're trying to look for patterns Uh, In radiology, it is an extremely disciplined approach. You want to analyze an image exactly the same way another radiologist would do it, the way you were taught to do it. So the way you scan and uh, the way you report uh, and the way you deal with the findings is all very standardized. You don't want to miss anything. um, And there is absolutely no room for creativity. 
you know, you go by set norms and set rules, and it's it's a highly disciplined ap- approach and very logical. Um, photography, on the other hand, even though it involves visual analysis, is completely free, right? I mean, yeah, there are rules, but nobody is going to fault you if you break them, and it's not like anybody is going to die <laughs> if you if you make a mistake. Um, so that way, uh, the, you don't have that pressure. It's rather more the pressure for uh, self-expression. So it's a very different kind of um, feeling. And um, I think the two complement each other very well, because when I'm out in the field in sub-zero temperatures, you know, hiking up in a blizzard or whatever, and experiencing a lot of physical strain and wondering why the heck am I even doing this to generate an image? You know, you're questioning yourself and you know that after the effort is put in, the reward you get is so good that you do it all over again. Um, So when I come back to radiology and I'm sitting in a plush chair and I'm sipping my coffee and looking at images on my monitors and, you know, I'm in a very comfortable environment and people around me are saying, this is so stressful. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, so it gives a very good perspective of things and, and makes you realize stress is really uh, relative. It's, it's more based on your perspective and your attitude. Um, It's basically your reaction to the circumstances around you rather than the circumstances themselves. Um, So constantly putting myself in a different environment makes me appreciate um, the other environment even more. So when I'm doing radiology for an extended period of time, I really crave the outdoor spaces, you know, because I'm cooped up in a dark room and looking at images all day. And when I'm out there and I'm, you know, if I'm under physical duress and after an extended period out there, I'm like, oh, I want to come back and experience the comfort of home, you know, the comfort of my usual food and all of that. And in each experience, I think the other one is, um, it becomes that much more special and that much more precious. Is it a a balance act for you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know, people have asked, how can you switch? Because, you know, one moment you're, one day you're like completely disciplined and another day you're like running free in the wilderness. How do you make that switch? I don't really think I switch. I am always complete with those two parts. It's just a point of which part I'm drawing from on a given day. Um, But I think it's both of those parts that complete you as a person. That That's really interesting. I've been doing a lot of work myself on, on mindset and kind of what you're describing. And it, it comes down for me working on more energy towards both instead of more energy towards one versus the other. Both kind of interact with one another to set that midpoint, the balance point that helps you enjoy, you know, photography work in the office, editing, um, processing your images, kind of curating your website, things like that. And also the diligence to get out and experience the outdoors and also the stresses and uh, weather that we have to shoot in. Yes, yes. And I think it's important to push ourselves, you know, in life in general. I don't know. I I feel uh, you become very stagnant if you don't push yourself, you know. I could easily sit back and say, uh, why don't I just do radiology and not try to excel or improve in photography and just be content and, you know, take the occasional trip and not try to teach or not try to create images with purpose, but just to enjoy myself. But I think if you do that, you actually rob yourself of the joy of that reward. You know, there is something to be said about putting in effort, pushing yourself, setting goals that are lofty and achieving them. And I have always in life found um, a lot of joy in, in being able to achieve goals that I set myself to not do that and just, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, wasn't it Oscar Wilde who once said that to live is perhaps the rarest thing of all. Most mm. people just exist. That's all. 
And I think that difference between existing versus living comes from seeking out experiences that do make you uncomfortable, that do make you scared, that do push you beyond what you think you can actually do, make you stand on that edge. And, and you know, I think it's it's that feeling of being uncomfortable and yet overcoming and then, you know, getting your reward is what makes life much more interesting. Last time you experienced that feeling was when? I I think every time I, uh, well, every day. <laughs> For example, like right now, I'm, uh, you know, you, you talk about a feeling of, oh, can I really do this? Right? Am I an imposter? Uh, we all suffer from that imposter syndrome. And I think if you're suffering from that imposter syndrome, you're essentially pushing yourself to do something that you're not so sure you're going to achieve. Right? Um, and so you are kind of living it every day. Um, I've been setting up workshops uh, for this year and for next year. And as I set them up, I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. You know, I look at other people's websites and I'm thinking they look so accomplished. They have been doing it for 10 years. And here I am trying to, you know, step into this um, fiercely competitive world. Will I be able to succeed? You know, you get those self-doubts all the time. But all the, that's all the more reason for me to push myself to set that goal and say, you need to overcome that fear and that uncertainty and just jump in and do it. So yeah, almost every day I, I think I push myself. <laughs> what do you hope in your workshops that are coming up? I know you have one coming up in just a few days in Yosemite National Park. Mm-hmm. In terms of your participants, what do you hope to show them about themselves and their photography? So one of the primary things I wanted to do with my workshops was to make them small group. So I want to cap them at four, um, since I'm the one person teaching, so, you know, four people for uh, something that's domestic and a maximum of six. Um, so it will be like four to six if it's an international workshop, because I like being very, very hands on of being able to spend dedicated time with each participant and trying to understand their creative vision. The whole purpose of the workshop is to help a person identify what it is that they like to do, you know, and then fine tune their creative style. And it's difficult to do that when you have a group of eight people and you take them to a location and you're like, okay, there's an image to generate here, go ahead and do it. Um, that that's not the purpose of my workshop. I really want to identify individual creative style and help them fine tune it and do it in every step of the process from when they step into the field to what they choose to shoot, how they wish to arrange the visual elements. And then later on in post-processing, how do you want to render it? What is, what is the mood you want to convey? And what is the purpose behind your photography? Why are you taking this specific path? Why do you want to express yourself in this particular way? Um, I think once that realization comes, it becomes easier for people to seek out those kinds of images because that's what they resonate with. And I often feel that if you don't feel a strong emotional connection to your own image, then it would be a tall order to expect other people to feel an emotional connection to it. Um, so, so that's kind of, um, I haven't seen too many people do small group workshops like that. Um, I also tried like individual workshops and I still do them, but I think having a couple of other people there kind of adds, um, more joy, you know, um, it helps to share ideas, um, and a sense of camaraderie without being, you know, feeling like it's getting crowded, uh, everyone has enough space for their own, own composition. So I really enjoy that uh, experience quite a bit. Are you excited to get them off the ground? Yeah, and actually I've been doing a few. I did a few and, you know, the feedback has been tremendous. <laughs> so I literally have time after every shoot to say, hey guys, what did you like about that? Or what did you not like about that? You know, what, what would you like to do differently before the next shoot even happens? So it's a, it's a, been a very rewarding journey. And, you know, everyone that I have encountered has been extremely happy Um so yeah, it's nice to share those positive experiences. Totally makes my day. What What have you learned from some of your participants um, 
or hope to learn from future participants? I think every single individual, no matter what level of photography they are at, have something to teach you. Uh, sometimes it might be purely technical. Sometimes it be it may be more philosophical. But uh, I think there is so much to learn from every person you come across. Um, and you know, the other thing I realized is that I thrive with social interactions. That I thrive with having a meaningful conversation with another person, and these workshops help me to do that, to actually bond with the individuals that who come to take it and to understand, um, understand them a little bit better. Um, and it just overall makes me a better person. I think to have those interactions um, gives me a broader perspective of where people are coming from, what they like, what they don't like, um, how they would react if they wanted to heal themselves. Because ultimately, the better I understand human psyche, the better I'll be able to serve my greater purpose, which is basically how do we use art to heal ourselves. Um, so yeah, uh, I've been learning quite a bit. Hey guys, real quick, I want to talk to you about the sponsor for today's podcast, and that's Near Zero Backpacks. For the past couple weeks, you've been hearing about some of the features that their backpacks have that will really make your experience in the field a lot better. I know when I'm scratching up against rocks, going through slot canyons, or just kind of getting a tight composition, I worry about the ruggedness of my backpack. And I want to talk about the fabrics on Near Zero Backpacks they have two options for you, the Rugged Series and the Standard Series. Now, these fabrics are called EPL 200 and VX21. Do you really need to know the names of them? Not really, but you should know that they're extremely strong against elements in the field. I've been trying to rip these, scratch these, tear these, and I literally can't do it. You know, the ELP 200 on their Rugged series has a tear strength of 110 pounds where the standard series is 21 pounds. They're waterproof and the waterproofing never wears off. So I'm always concerned about these elements that can penetrate my camera bag and kind of mess up my camera gear. You really don't have to worry about that with the Near Zero backpack systems. And you might be thinking too, all that strength, all that protection, it's gotta weigh down the camera bag. You have to remember, we're talking about the lightest camera backpack on the market. So go over to nearzerolabs.com and go ahead and pick up either the Rugged Series or the Standard Series, because these backpacks are relatively impenetrable. And when you check out, be sure to tell them that David sent you from the Landscape Photography Show. All right, guys. Let's get back to the episode. That that phrase, using art to heal yourself. I mean, obviously, you have a passion for healing physically through radiology and figuring out what's possibly wrong with somebody, helping them get better. In, in terms of therapeutic photography and, and kind of healing through art and creativity, it, how do, how do you hope that your photographs can be therapeutic for other people? So as far as the images go, actually, um, the whole reason I started shooting initially was because I wasn't happy with the um, images that were being displayed in the medical centers that I was working at in the hospitals. And, um, you know, um, when I approached the hospital board and I said, why don't we display images of nature? Because, you know, nature is healing. They were like, well, you go ahead and get those images and we'll see if, you know, we can incorporate them into the medical center. So that's kind of how I embarked on the journey of creating images that would be healing. Um, and without realizing it, I got them these raging sunrises and sunsets that, you know, we all we would chase after as landscape photographers. And they took one look at that and said, Dr. Eddie, we will not display any of these in the hospital because a sunrise essentially looks just like a sunset. And for a person who is, uh, you know, sick, it might signal the end of the day and the end of life. So we don't want anything that's overtly dramatic. Um, we would like something that's soothing. So right off the bat, I learned that what we chase after as landscape photographers is not necessarily 
what is healing um, or are able to create an ambience of healing. So those wow images that you go, that is so rad, <laughs> just doesn't work. Uh, you need images that go, that's more calm, that's, you know, serene. So I had to switch uh, when trying to generate images for healing. I had to switch my style a little bit and say, okay, it's not the sunrises and sunsets we're after. We're after more blue and green tones and more placid atmosphere. Um, uh, so uh, that, that gave, you know, that was one big influence on my art. Um I forget your question now, David. <laughs> what was it? it just, it, how, just how your work and and how you want people to experience healing through right. your own work. Right. So then they started putting up those images on the walls, and you know it really affected the ambiance. And when patients started appreciating it, and then when the staff who worked there came and said, you know, it's such a pleasure to walk into the hospital and and see these images. It really um, makes me happier for working here. I knew that that with imagery you can have a big impact um, on how you make people feel. Um, you can transport them to a different place, even if it's temporary. Uh, you can reduce stress by just looking at an image of a waterfall. So um, I did not understand visual therapy till until I went through that experience. Um, so that was one way, um, you know, that I was able to say, let's change how we heal. Um, because in the hospital, we were constantly paying attention to technological advancements that would heal the body, but creating an ambience that was really stressful for the mind with fluorescent lights and whitewashed walls. And then changing that and saying, no, we need to have a warmer <clears throat> excuse me, welcoming atmosphere so that uh, people feel comfortable um, and we are able to suit the mind because the mind and body need to be healed together was was the approach I wanted to take. And and it yielded good results. I mean, people liked, liked that a lot. Um, but going beyond that and saying, okay, let's incorporate art to reduce stress in our life. That was the next step, right? Like, so I'm just not creating art and putting it up on the walls, but now I want people to start incorporating art into their lives, whether that is by creation of images or by appreciation of images. So I would be invited to give talks um, to, um, you know, based on how, what are the measures you can take to reduce stress in your life? Because obviously, this happened quite a bit in the medical setting because physicians tend to be stressed. You know, we have a lot at risk if we make a mistake. We are working very long hours and uh, it's a lot of pressure even at 3 a.m. when you're trying, you know, really hard to keep your eyes open and you're feeling sleepy. You know, you cannot miss even the smallest thing because it could cost somebody's life. That's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress to be under day after day. So it was like, well, how do we deal with that stress? What can we do to compensate for it and recover from it? And so I would share my experiences of being out in nature, of, of generating these images and, and talk about that experience of finding flow, you know, that when you go out into nature and you're so focused on observing the nuances of light uh, and trying to create an image based on that, that you tend to forget everything else, that all other distractions fall off and you're not in the past, you're not in the future, you're only in the present. You literally are in a meditative state and you have found your flow. And that's when you experience moments of joy and bliss. And the more of such moments you can garner, the better you become at handling stress. So that was my message to them, that it doesn't matter if you're not shooting and creating art, at least go out there and experience nature and to find those moments of flow. You know, some people may find it when they're painting, others may find it when they're playing an instrument, uh, others may find it because they deliberately have moments of meditation set aside, it doesn't matter what your path is, but the most important thing is to find those moments of Zen and make that, you know, come into your life on a frequent basis um, to, to help with healing yourself. Uh, and so that was my message. And then um, taking it a step further, um, very soon, um, I 
uh, have these big aspirations to collaborate with uh, a wellness company. I'm just talking to them at this point, so I can't release any of the details. But the point is that there are people who are suffering from terminal illness. Uh, there are people who are grieving because they have lost a loved one. And they're all trying to find a way to experience those moments of bliss. How do you do that if you're suffering and if you're grieving and you have this tremendous pressure, you know, hanging over your head? How do you get away from that and still find those meditative moments? I think the only way to do that is to incorporate nature and art into your life. And um, so I'm trying to come up with workshops which would combine uh, meditation and yoga with creation of art. And if you're going through a grieving process, counseling services that would combine it with creation of art, you know, um, so basically using art for healing in all of those realms. This is a topic that absolutely fascinates me because it's a process. The creative process helped me when I was dealing with PTSD and, and coming out of that, um, realizing how important photography was for me, not realizing it prior uh, to that moment. But I'm, I'm curious, are there any cultural stigmas that you have to overcome when describing how photography can be used as a therapeutic method, not only for body, but also connecting that with the health of your mind? I think um, all all across history, right? We have used art to heal ourselves. We may not have acknowledged it, but when you think back to it, I think every artist, when they were creatively expressing themselves, were subconsciously seeking out those moments of flow. That's why they kept doing it, right? So I don't think culturally anyone is isolated from that process. Um, we have had paintings come up from everywhere in the world, you know, right from the cave paintings, right? Uh, we have had um, music come up from all over the world. Um, and I think every art is universal. And that's why photography becomes a universal language. It doesn't matter which corner of the world you're in. You are able to appreciate the beauty of nature in an image. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter what your culture is. Doesn't matter what your upbringing was or what language you speak. So I think this is one medium that literally it's like more, you know, modern medicine, you could say is universal. If you give an antibiotic, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. Your body is going to heal. It's going to kill um, the bacteria. By the same token, I think art is the prescription for the mind to heal. And uh, it's a universal prescription that uh, I think we can definitely leverage to a greater degree. And I resonate with what you say, David, on our own personal journeys, you know, if we, if we reflect upon it and say, what suited me when I felt down? I think it was probably the time spent in nature, right? Um, I recently experienced the loss of my father and it felt, the grief felt like completely incapacitating. I felt like, will I ever walk again? You know, uh, I had never experienced that degree of grief before. And um, I have been counseling patients when, when they lose family members without realizing what they were going through. Because unless you experience the loss of a loved one, um, you don't really understand how bad that feels. And um, I think it was a, an important lesson for me to learn uh, in, in this wellness journey to, to basically put myself into the shoes of someone who's suffering so deeply and who's grieving to that extent. And when you go through that process, and then you step into nature and use that to heal yourself and you use your art to heal yourself, then I am a living example. I'm not talking about something I haven't experienced personally. And it gives me, you know, greater confidence to speak about it because I have gone through that personal journey and I've used this and it has helped me. Then let me spread this message to others so that they can, you know, benefit from it as well. Um, so like when, when you say you went through PTSD and then you used art to heal yourself, then you become the brand ambassador for, <clears throat> excuse me, the phrase art is healing. And yeah, that's a great thing. Do you think that experience will help you empathize 
with your patients to a greater degree? I think so. And actually, you know, I, um, I've had a, a couple of friends who had experienced loss and, and, you know, they lost a spouse suddenly. Uh, and uh, at that time, when I, I mean, I was compassionate, but I wasn't compassionate to the degree I should have been because I didn't really understand their grief. So when I called them up a couple of months later and they were still grieving, I was like, but don't you want to move on with life? You know, he's gone, but don't you want to move on with life? Life is so precious. Why are you not moving on? What I fail to understand is there are some things that you will never move on, that that grief transforms you as a person and you become a new person. You it becomes a new normal, you know, and um, I did not understand that. And I do now. Um, so I think when I see someone who's going through grief now, I can definitely empathize with them much better because I have a greater understanding of how that feels, right? It's, it's, it's like, you know, um, when we do our radiology tests and we give people uh, this barium stuff to drink and I'm standing there and I do this so frequently and I'm like, yeah, just chug it up and I'll take pictures using x-rays and the person is trying to drink this chalky fluid. It doesn't taste good. I'm just repeating the words. It doesn't taste good. It tastes chalky, but believe me, it won't be painful. Just drink it up. And so they drink it up and they do the test. And then one day I was like, I keep repeating these words, but maybe I should drink it myself and see what that feels like. <laughs> and after that, I wasn't ever flippant about just drink it up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you kind of have to, I think, like I said, experience things for yourself to understand the true significance of how they impact you as a person without doing that. And just with hearsay, you are not really capable of counseling someone about it. Talking about loss and, and I feel like coming out of a, a, a time that we were all afraid of, of loss and, and the pandemic. I know you're basically home park Yosemite where you spend a lot of time shooting shut down for a significant amount of time. Was there ever a point where you were fearful of, of having a loss of that escape, that outlet, that, uh, mental therapy therapy for yourself in Yosemite? On the contrary, I absolutely enjoyed the periods of shutdown. What happened was you had to get into a lottery process. And it wasn't that hard, honestly, to snag a permit. If you just had to be a little bit conscientious, you get up at, you know, whatever, set your alarm for 7 a.m. and log on and try to snag that permit. Okay, so if you don't get it today, try it tomorrow and you get it. And usually when it's not weekends and, you know, on random days in winter, it's so easy to get the permit. And when I got the permit and I went there, it was an absolute heaven, David. It was the best I had ever seen Yosemite. I mean, the bears are out playing. There are coyotes running everywhere. Like the animals were not scared at all. And I saw Yosemite the way it should be seen for once. No tourists, no buses, you know, no chatter of people just like that serene calmness. And I just got goosebumps. Absolutely loved it. I made so many trips. I know Gavin Newsom said, you know, don't go beyond whatever certain number of miles. And Yosemite was just a little bit beyond what I should have gone out for. But I took that liberty. And um, I went out quite a few times because I knew that the, that special moment might never come back. I might never get to experience Yosemite with so few people. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if they just instituted that as a permanent measure and let, you know, trails recovered. And it just, it was so heavenly. And I have never seen it that beautiful. So absolutely enjoyed it. And, you know, there were times when I didn't even take my camera. I just went hiking and exploring the place and enjoying it. Um, so I think now we still have a permit in place and that's a good way to do it actually because we do want to preserve these sacred places for posterity and not commercialize them. And the more we let, you know, bus loads of tourists come, you know, each bus has 60 people. There are a couple of buses lined up at Tunnel View. You have 120 people standing over there. 
somebody shouting instructions at them on how to shoot the scene and you know with ISO this f this and and you're thinking is this really how you want to photograph Yosemite and you're ruining it for the person who's taking the picture you're ruining it for everyone who came there to view it i think it's terrible so uh, if we have to deprive ourselves a little bit in terms of availability of spots i say go for it because are we like so super important that we should put our wants and needs above those of nature we are just a tiny part of cosmos so what's the big deal if you don't get into yosemite you're going to say i'm going to be mad about it and let that sacred place you know turn into a commercial zoo just so you could enjoy it every time you wanted it to how could we be that arrogant that short-sighted um i don't understand that at all so when people say oh i'm bummed out about not being able to go in sure i understand your personal sentiment but the very next sentence should be but i am glad the place is being preserved well and that it's recovering well and as long as you have that attitude it's a very very minute sacrifice to make knowing that in the long run it's a good thing where can people go to find more out about you and also sign up for your workshops uh my website uh, sabnareddy.com i'm just in the process of uh, there's, there's just a, a couple of them on there now and and they're sold out but uh i have more and that will be coming up in the near future i am setting up a workshop for iceland in november um i will be doing the cypress swamps workshop uh also in november uh i have a utah workshop just launched in october and then hopefully next year when things open up for us i'll be back um really want to showcase bhutan and bali uh and india um kind of focus on asia a little bit i i of course have a deep rooted passion for the culture i understand it well and i've been to all of these places and i feel there is a lot to experience not just in terms of nature and photography but also in terms of culture out there um so hope to have that going and my entire um calendar for the wellness programs is still <clears throat> a work in progress so uh hopefully in the next few months um i will be able to get that up and running as well well she's sapna ready sapna thank you so much for joining us and talking photography thank you so much for having me on here david it was a pleasure speaking with you So that wraps up this episode here, what you're listening to right now. But I actually had an extended conversation with Sapna about some of the topics that we talked about in this episode specifically. You can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for any tier that fits your budget, either five, 10 or $20 per month to keep the podcast going week after week and in return, you get exclusive content like from today's episode where we go into further detail about the healing power of photography and also a really interesting discussion about what Sapna saw during the pandemic when Yosemite shut down and how nature flourished in that area and the possibility of having a permit system on the parks department instead of just free reign for everything. Remember, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for whatever tier fits your budget, just like John Norris did signing up for that tier that gets him exclusive content, meetings with me, a quarterly ebook, plus much more. Thanks so much, guys. Can't wait to see you next week.